a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. He is the all-knowing, this gentleman. Anything that is going on in the world, he is an expert. He's got three PhDs on the subjects of international politics and uh, and issues in that sort of realm. Dr. Keith Souter is renowned in Australia as a commentator on all these sorts of issues in media as well. So, And had decades under your belt of learning about this stuff in many countries around the world. And a member of many clubs like the Club of Rome, Rome. That you like to talk about, <laughs> <laughs> like to talk about all these upper echelon types of clubs, Keith. Uh, and what we do is every week in this podcast, we choose a subject, uh, an issue that is going on in the world, and we break it down into really into layman's terms and, and really easy to understand stuff. And my role is to to ask you those questions. We've worked together for many years now yes, in television and, and radio context, and that's my background as well. So today we're going to talk about the coronavirus, but in the context of this is a dream for dictators around the world, Keith. There is an absolute infringement on civil liberties going on. Yes, that's it. So I've, I've been interested in the debate over civil liberties and coronavirus and uh, came across an article by um, a left-wing website called Fascists Are Using COVID-19 to Advance Their Agenda. It's up to us to stop it. This is Truth Out, which is um, an American website. And they're saying that there is an emergency playbook, which we have seen operating not just over coronavirus, but over a number of other issues since the terrorism attack in 2001 on the United States. So one is to use the emergency to restrict civil liberties, particularly the rights regarding movement, protest, freedom of the press, a right to trial, freedom to gather. A second one is to use the emergency to suspend government institutions, consolidate power, reduce institutional checks and balances, and reduce access to elections and other forms of participatory governance. Also to promote a sense of fear and individual helplessness, particularly in relation to the government, to reduce the outcry and to create a culture where people consent to the power of the dominant state. To replace democratic institutions with autocratic institutions using the emergency as justification and creating scapegoats for the emergency such as immigrants, people of colour, disabled people, ethnic, religious minorities to distract public attention away from the failures of the state and the loss of civil liberties. So that's the playbook. And you see that it playing out, so to speak, in a number of issues. We've seen it also since 2001, you know, that we've had the concerns about terrorism. We have legislation in the United States, which I could never have predicted would be coming into play, you know, in terms of the intrusiveness, you know, going through immigration, you'll get a more intimate experience there than you're probably likely to get in your own bedroom at home. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got all this... uh, all this searching of people, checking of emails and all the rest of it. When you look back, stand back and see this sort of incremental creep of governmental power. And so you also link it up with the belief that uh, you need strong leaders to maintain order over society. We saw that in the 1920s and 1930s, Mussolini or Stalin, and then later on, of course, Hitler, all saying, you know, support me, the strong person, I will bring order and I'll deal with the uh, difficult people in the Soviet Union. There were the Kulaks, the people who owned a little bit of land. They were exterminated. A lot of other ethnic groups in the old Soviet Union 
were also removed. Of course, the Germans under Hitler went after Jews and ended up with the Holocaust. So the strong leader says, trust me and we will get through this crisis, but give me almost unlimited power and I'll be able to go ahead and do so. So in, in the case of Hitler, quite early on in his time, after he came to power in 1933, had support for what was called the Enabling Act, which was one piece of legislation that in a sense gave him unlimited power. And if you look at what we're seeing at the moment, as you know, there's a debate going on in Australia talking about an app which will be able to check on where you're moving to see if you're close to somebody else who has got uh, the coronavirus. Well, that's also another example of the police state. And sorry, just going back to your example of Hitler before as well, and also the scaremongering plays a role in this. This this coronavirus is actually a dream in a way for, for would-be dictators because there's already scared people anyway. Yeah, we have been very anxious. I noticed that even with my American students now coming across. So these are all children of the post-9-11 world. They're all very anxious. Sometimes uh, they leave Sydney and they have a, a quick holiday in New Zealand. They are amazed that when you board a plane in New Zealand to go to another city within New Zealand, they don't ask for any identity. Wait, uh, is this at the moment during yeah, coronavirus? This is, well, I don't know if it's at the moment because I don't have any students now in this country. They've all gone back home to the United States. But it was interesting that up until uh, recently, you could board a plane in New Zealand. If it's an internal flight, Auckland or Wellington or whatever, they are not that fussed about security. Obviously, they keep an eye on all the passengers and you don't get terrorism attacks in the air in New Zealand. And the only terrorism attack they've had big time, of course, is an Australian who went over there who deliberately selected New Zealand because he said it was going to be a soft target. So what one sees then is um, an anxious generation that is emerging of people who feel very concerned, even though their chances of being killed in terrorism would be fairly small, but you can't argue that rationally with people. People don't think in risk terms. Uh, they just simply see uh, see themselves as being very vulnerable to this attack. So what we're seeing, if you look back at what this means for democracy, is the way in which it's being argued that democracy um, has failed. If you have a democratic country like Italy, then it's all over the place. What you need uh, will be tough societies. Um, and yet, ironically... When you look at who's doing best at combating the coronavirus outside of the um, uh, control by China, then some of the best countries would be South Korea and Taiwan that are democracies. They are flourishing democracies. The problem with China is as an autocratic state, it for a while denied there was a problem with coronavirus and that courageous doctor who first identified it, was punished by his government, later died of it. It's just awful. It's appalling. So, in other words, dictatorships are not necessarily good for your health, which is what the Chinese would like to suggest, and that it may well be that the, the old weird democracies that we've got, like South Korea, Taiwan, are actually safer places to be. And it's really interesting you say that. While you were talking, I was thinking about Italy because it just exploded there. But there is a lot of cynicism in Italy with regard to their politicians, which is why it was blamed, that was blamed on it spreading so quickly in Italy because people ignore their government. They don't trust their government. There is, which is an interesting sort of... It is. Remember Mussolini's phrase, governing Italy is not difficult, it's simply irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) This is not, not a new problem. 
you know, it's the life that continues on. That's why the mafia is so popular in southern Italy because local mafia groups get things done in terms of a lot of the work of, um, you know, getting food supplies, etc. Not just the coronavirus, this goes back for decades. You know, they, they were looking after people. Uh, okay, they're criminals, but they also looked after people because you couldn't rely on the government in Rome at the other end of the country. And so you have a vibrant non-governmental movement within Italy of people who look after each other. This also is offered a bit of a tangent, but it's quite interesting. There was a, a study done of an Italian migrant community in the northeast United States that did everything wrong. So they smoke, they drank, they ate all the wrong food, heavy in preservatives, etc. And yet they were the longest living section of that state's population. So the experts sort of moved in to find out what on earth kept them going. And it was this element of social capital, the networking, people uh, working together, even though they're in, in pretty difficult professions, normally very dangerous professions, they're stonemasons or whatever. Nonetheless, they had a good community bonding, right? So this is something which you pick up if you're in Italy and that sense of providing you're an Italian. It's a community spirit. They had taken that with them when they went to live in the United States, carrying out the work in the in the quarries. And so, even though they're drinking too much, smoking too much, eating the you know the spicy Italian food, they were living longer. And then, and then of course, you get the, all the advantages of living in the United States. You know that they break up the community. You're suddenly living in you know big houses, separate from the neighbours. You break down the social capital, and now they're statistics are just as bad as the average American. But it was very interesting that it, that it was this element of social capital, looking out for one another, that kept that community together. If only that still worked in the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. Well, we, we are now trying to reinvent it. Look at the advertisements the governments are issuing. You know, they're talking about, uh, you know, look after the elderly neighbours, leave food outside their homes. Obviously, don't go inside, but leave food outside, etc. Lifeline on the telephone number 13114 is encouraging people, if you're feeling lonely, give us a call. A Lifeline, with which I've been associated for decades, operates throughout the year, including Christmas and Easter. There are no public holidays for Lifeline. Brilliant service created by a colleague of mine, Alan Walker. So what is interesting is that it builds up the social capital. And we're having to rediscover that because, unfortunately, for the last 30 or 40 years, we have all become new right economic rationalists. In other words, that we don't like the community, we look out for number one. And the coronavirus is exploiting this individualistic attitude that we've got. We look out for number one, we're not worried about the rest of the community. And the coronavirus is in effect saying, well, look out for the rest of the community. You just can't be a healthy person in an unhealthy society. And it's quite interesting as well because you're seeing that on the streets, you're seeing that through the stories of people dobbing in each other for certain behaviours, <laughs> you know, in the media all the time. Like, this yeah. is actually happening. You see people pop up with their phone and take a photo of people who are not socially distanced to the to the degree that they're meant to be socially exactly. distanced. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, it does play into that, that notion of looking out for oneself. Absolutely, and the moral policing that's going on, which is good. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Sudam. We're talking today about the impact that coronavirus is having in terms of dictatorships because, as we know, this is a dictator's dream. You've got a very scared population, a lot of fear, a lot of unknown, 
and that's when you can seize control and, and people essentially have to listen to you. But, Keith, you're saying that China wasn't a great example of this in this, in this kind of context, but then what is because what, what has been a, a sort of good example of dictatorship? Uh, well, I don't think there is a good dictatorship of, of handling coronavirus, right? I, th- I think China has lifted its game, but don't forget, handled the, the crisis in the, in the initial steps very badly indeed because, as I say, it tried to deny there was a problem. It is embarrassed that it still has um, the trafficking in uh, live animals in their wet markets. The advantage, if you're a dictator, is that you can hose down a discussion by strict censorship. In a democracy, you get the free flow of ideas. Amatya Sen has said there's never been a famine in a democracy. In other words, that in a dictatorship, you can get famines. We saw that in the old Soviet Union. We saw that in uh, China under Chairman Mao Zedong. But in an open society, word gets out that there are food problems and food then can be moved around the country. In a way, you ca- in a dictatorship, you just simply close down the discussion and you treat the people with the message badly. And, of course, we're seeing that in another context, you know, with Julian Assange, that he revealed war crimes being committed and the Americans want to punish him. They're not punishing the people who did the war crimes. They're going after the person alerted the world to this or at least publicised it. So it's very interesting. They're shooting the messenger and ignoring the original message, which is that war crimes were committed. So in a sense, I'm saying you can do things now in America you could not have been doing before 9-11 because America is becoming much more now a police state and the coronavirus crisis is simply adding to those powers. And what we're also seeing, ironically, is this tension between the President of the United States and state governors as to who actually runs the country. The Constitution is fairly clear. Trump doesn't have the power to govern states. And, you know, and partly that's what the American Civil War was about in 1861 to 1865. Trump doesn't have the power that he seems to think that he does have. But the power is down at the state level. But even there, you can end up with state governments exerting power over individuals in a way which you would not have thought possible a few decades ago. Yeah, it's really interesting as well, because we've also seen this week, you know, well, it looks like you know, Donald Trump is essentially trying to get himself out of a position where he'll want to be the country in the world that fares the worst through this. Yep. Um, and that's not a good look in an election year leading up to an election. So he's desperately trying to, um, what you're referring to there is that the governments or the, the, the governors of the states made the decision to shut down their states. But that didn't come from Donald Trump. That came no. from these individual states. But he's trying to claim credit for that at the moment. But also we see, we've seen this week from him that extraordinary press conference when he took control and showed the media their errors in a way <laughs> to try and show where they got it wrong and he's the one that was right because he, he's getting criticised so heavily about yeah, his decisions. It's an appalling performance by him because at the beginning of the year when the virus was just developing and people were talking about it, Trump said this is fake news. This is done by the, 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 this is the media whipping up something which is not a major issue and it's also being manufactured by the Democrats with a view to damaging his re-election chances in November. So Trump was positioning himself in the first instance as the president who'd presided over the longest period of economic growth in American history. Beginning under Obama with the rescue package of 2008, they rescued the banks, they didn't rescue ordinary Americans, and he then built upon what Obama had achieved. However, all that has, got, has, all that has gone, and we're now on the verge of another great recession. 
I've been reminiscing about how four years ago when we were talking about the election of Donald Trump, I said, well, business people as a rule don't run for the White House. They're too busy running the country through their business to ever bother to waste time with politics. And indeed, the last business person we had in the White House was Herbert Hoover. And Herbert Hoover presided over the Great Depression. Uh, <laughs> and so I just sort of left that in the air. I just a, a macabre joke now in retrospect because we've got another business person in the White House, second one in 90 years, and he's presiding over another great recession. Now, now he's changing the narrative. He's no longer talking about economic growth because it no longer exists. Mm. He's now calling himself a wartime president. And Americans re-elect wartime presidents all the way back to 1812. If you're running for re-election during a war, you will get re-elected. And most recently, of course, it was... Um, President Bush in 2004, after the disastrous invasion of Iraq, nonetheless got re-elected in 2004. And it's a certainty, I guess, you know what you're going to get. And they're rallying around the flag. And so that's what Trump is now counting on, that people will see him as this great wartime leader. Do you think that'll happen? I mean, because some people, you know, just would think this is the nail in the coffin, but, I mean, we know that he's a master of narratives. Yeah, Exactly. Well, that's what he's doing at the moment. Is it going to work in November? Who knows? We're so far away from November. And these are things that are changing so quickly. I've just been watching one American commentator say this is the biggest global crisis outside of two world wars that we've had for 100 years. In other words, he's going back to the, the great flu pandemic right after or towards the end of World War One, and then ran through into about 1920. So, and that, that was quite significant. So I think in a sense... The next few months, we'll see dramatic changes as to what's happening. I don't think they're changes so much as uh, being initiated by the coronavirus as being accelerated by it. And so, you know, when I'm talking about the development of police states. Well, that didn't start under Donald Trump. That began earlier under George Bush Jr. following 9-11. So, so we're seeing these trends being accelerated by the coronavirus rather than being created by it. And so who knows what the world will look like by the time we get to the election in November of this year. And back on China very quickly to end, do you think that there's any, will they, will that government pay the price from their population for the decisions they've made during this or will it just be widely accepted? Do you know how we have so many conversations about the direction that China is going and the richer the population gets, the more educated they become, they generally want democracy and China is not going that direction. And they're obviously now capitalists, but they're not uh, democracy. They're not a democracy. And nor yeah. are their plans to be. But does it, something like this, would it impact them, for example? Would it nudge them in a direction, do you think? Or It may do that. Um, you know, we're speculating that China may grow old before it grows rich. Sure, there's a lot of wealth on the eastern seaboard. There are actually three Chinas. You've got the eastern seaboard, then you've got the middle of the bit of, uh, middle strip uh, north to south, and then the far west, which would be Tibet, Xinjiang. The wealth is down at Eastern Seaboard, which is where most of the tourists go. They see the wealthy China, but if China grows old before it grows rich, that wealth will not trickle down to the western side of China. So China has immense problems. I don't see this virus as a conspiracy by China to wound the rest of the world. Well, if if that were their intention, they're actually ruining their own chances. One of the things that we need to look at at some point is what this will do to manufacturing. Now, Australians and others have set their manufacturing to China. China is now the workshop of the world. Why don't we bring a lot of that manufacturing home and automate it? 
We won't be employing too many Australians, but at least we will have surety of supply. And so we would make it here in this country, in which case we will then damage China's chances of becoming the number one superpower by the year 2049, which is what it's aiming to be. But this coronavirus might set back those plans. You would think, judging the world's economy at the moment. Exactly. Thank you, Keith. As always, enlightening. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app. 